AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Lale Arakogli, and this is Women Who Travel. Today, in the second installment of our series about food, gardening and wellness, I'm talking to Sophia Rowe an activist, chef, and host of the travel and food show Counterspace, which just released its second season. One of the themes of her show is about how care and attention to a healthy diet and consuming local produce is so much better in countries outside of the US. Sophia's tone is often gloriously polemical, critical, and lively. And as a European who has family in the Mediterranean, I too have had to adapt to an American lifestyle where the priority is the workplace over the kitchen. Sophia points to capitalism as the culprit. In a lot of cities in the United States, it's like the amount of young people that I speak to that are like, yeah, I have no idea how to cook. I don't know anything. But like, I have money. They're so wiped that they don't even cook anymore. They just eat out, right? So before you know it, you have cultural erasure by proxy of productivity. That's how I feel about it. It's like, let's just completely eradicate an entire generation's ability to know how to feed themselves. You know, you were a chef and a cook, and now you're a TV host of a food and travel show. What has that learning process been like for you and becoming a host? Super fun. You know, I really feel like it was meant to be doing this job. And I think that some people might feel like weird about saying that or, you know, I I really feel like I was designed to be on television. Um, I never feel more comfortable than when there's a camera around. I just love a camera lens. You know, it just doesn't say anything back to you, right? It really catches you. It's really raw, right? It's not acting, right? I am, that's really me. I'm really in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean interviewing a fisherman. One of my favorite interviews was with this incredible fisherman, Bryn Smith. His love for the planet and his love for the ocean is just absolutely so inspiring. And he kind of stumbled into, from being a fisherman into kelp farming. So we decided to say, Bren, like, can you show us your kelp farm? And he did. And so we were literally in the middle of the ocean. And just to see and experience the ecological diversity through this incredible vertical farm. I mean, it just, I'm, I'm so stunned. I'm freezing cold. 
We're in the Thimble Islands in Brantford, Connecticut. We're gonna run out to my farm. And your farm is in the water. Yeah, it's under the water. So this used to be like this incredible fishing community. Lobster shacks, oyster um, shacks, like shucking houses at the end of the dock, all gone. It's so important that like in this new era of climate change, how do you keep culture alive? What's the point of living here, right? Yeah, if there's exactly. no money, then people move. And so then it's just the, exactly. just places get totally abandoned. Here it is. This is 10 acres, quarter million pounds of kelp, 200,000 oysters, a couple hundred thousand of, of mussels, all in these 10 acres. We got lines horizontally uh, just below the surface. So it's like a rope scaffolding system. Our kelp is soaking up uh, five times more carbon than land-based plants. I mean, it is the sequoia of the sea. We're creating artificial reefs. So the best fishing in the area is around the farm because there's just so much going on. Ducks, seals, everybody congregates here. It's also replicable. So if you have 20,000 bucks and a boat and a lease, you can start your own farms. So it eradicates the land acquisition problem. Exactly. I don't own these. <laughs> 10 acres, I lease them from the town. No fences, right? And it's 50 bucks an acre a year to grow here. That wow. is oh, so affordable. But that's a really good thing, right? We don't want to privatize the ocean. Absolutely. The issue with food right now is big is necessary, so you have to be this big corporate thing. Mechanized, that, yes. Exactly, yes. have climate impact or small is beautiful, which is beautiful, but it's too small. I think there's a, there's a sweet spot in the middle, which is replication. So we see scale as networks of small-scale farms. You keep adding this, we can do network production, soak up an entire, a huge amount of carbon, nitrogen, and feed a huge number of people. Our food doesn't swim away, and you don't have to feed it, you don't have to water, fertilize. As the prices of water go up, land-based food's gonna get more expensive. Ours is gonna stay the same, which is gonna move it to the center of the plate. Was there a specific event that made you realize, like, wow, there's actually less fish? It was the height of the industrial fishery. I was working on 170, 200 feet boats, chasing fish around the globe. But when I was on the Bering Sea, the cod stocks crashed back in Newfoundland. A stunning moment for me where an economy and a culture built up over hundreds of years disappears overnight, right? Whoa. And literally fishermen, like hungry ghosts walking the streets. I remember standing in line in Newfoundland to buy fish and it was from Russia. So the impact was not just, oh wow, there are less fish to eat, but the impact is on your community. Had you ever heard of a kelp farmer before you became one? Oh my God, no. I'd never heard of kelp. He is just a true wonder. Like, I could get teary just thinking about him. I mean, how much he loves the ocean, how much he loves the planet, and understands it. And he started out as just this, he calls himself this, like, humble fisherman, right? And then he just realized, like, you know, I don't know how sustainable this is. And he kind of stumbled into, from being a fisherman into kelp farming. So he coincidentally can't swim and is allergic to shellfish, which I think is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> So this second season, being able to actually sit next to a person and have a conversation with a person felt absolutely like what a food and travel show is supposed to be, mm -hmm. you know? And that human connection is such a huge part of travel and being able to be close to that person is often how I think you get those great conversations, right? Absolutely. What your show is about and what great food and travel journalism is, which is taking something like an agave plant and using it as a way in to talk about so many other things and often global issues and political issues, which is something that Counterspace touches on a lot. You know, you say that, kind of I'm paraphrasing you here, but 
I feel like you have a bit of a mantra that food is politics. The mm-hmm. two things do go hand in hand. Was that very much the mission going into the show and continuing it into season two? Or has it been something that has emerged as a through line? Oh my gosh, that was absolutely a mission. And you know what's so funny? You know what's so funny, girls? No one would ever, ever, ever question me if I said that now. I remember when I first said that, how food was just so inherently a political conversation. And people were like, what? But now here we are in a massive war with Russia and Ukraine, how that's impacted our value chains and supply chain systems. And no one would ever question that now. (laughs) So to think that you are not impacted by something that's happening across the globe is just outrageous. Chocolate's a really great example. It's one of my favorite examples, or chocolate and coffee. They're kind of interchangeable, right? It's like people all over the United States eat chocolate. However, it doesn't grow anywhere here. It grows in really small doses in Hawaii and a little bit in South Florida, but that's it. But almost 100% of people in the United States eat chocolate, right? Which means it's coming from somewhere. But if you were to ask a random person on the street where the best chocolate comes from, they might say, from Zurich or Munich or Switzerland. However, there are no cacao plants in Zurich or Munich or Switzerland. They are processing the chocolate, maybe they're helping to manufacture it, but in fact, you can thank Africa and South America for most of the chocolate that you eat. That's, I guess, what you mean when we talk about sort of the through line and the larger conversation about where chocolate comes from and how originally it was used for ceremonial and medicinal purposes. And where does this come from? Even its use at all is we have to have a conversation about an indigenous community, many indigenous communities that have brought this thing that they consider sacred to America, to Europe, etc. So I just feel like the conversation about how food is political Not only do people believe that now, but let's take it further and let's talk about the sort of ecological price of what we eat. You're saying, you know, even just a few years ago when you were setting about doing season one, people weren't having these conversations and it seemed like a sort of out there thing to talk about. With that in mind, was it hard to pitch the show? Did you have to do some convincing? A little bit. I do remember... This is a funny thing. It's going to sound so funny now because we're in this shroom boom, as they say. It feels like mushrooms are everywhere, right? But in a 2020, you know, and having a conversation with my producers, I was like, we got to do a mushroom episode. And they were like, eh, no one's going to really... Mushrooms? Really? It was everything mushrooms. Not just as a food, but textiles of mushroom shapes and images from designers and making fabric from mushrooms as a leather alternative, all from the roots of fungi. In fashion, Stella McCartney, McQueen, right? Rodarte, you're seeing it on runways. It's having this Milo leather. You know, it's this massive conversation now. There were some definite like, huh, what do you mean you want to talk about eating insects? And having to convince people, like, okay, well, you know, three billion people globally already eat them. How crazy is it to have a discussion about eating insects, right? I don't know that it's that wild. The show is really also about people, right? Because people eat. So it's like people grow our food. 
people distribute our food. People are who brought one food to another place, to another place, to another place. After the break, Sophia talks about the gap between people who have the luxury of taking a lot of care about what they put into their bodies and the glaring food insecurity across the globe. If you're enjoying this podcast, there is plenty more Women Who Travel content to enjoy on the Condé Nast Traveller website. Sign up to the Women Who Travel newsletter to get some of it in your inbox each month. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. We talk about the hardships and the ecological issues and, you know, carnivore versus vegan, etc., you know? It's great that you just mentioned vegan because one thing that I really like about Counterspace and also kind of your own attitude online and just throughout your work is that you acknowledge that it's a real privilege to have such a precisely defined diet, like to choose to be vegan. It's a choice that not everyone has, right? Has that always been your attitude or has it been speaking to different communities and traveling to different places and being exposed to different food access, I guess, around the world and here in the United States that has sort of brought you to that conclusion? That has very much always been my attitude because I grew up really hungry. I was in foster care as a kid. I was homeless with my mom at one point as a kid. So I always very much understood that... (laughs) Listen, you're lucky if you have anything to eat at all, let alone something that is nutritious or something that you can make a choice to eat or not eat. Gosh, so many things are a privilege, but having a choice at all is a privilege, let alone choosing what you buy at the grocery store. I mean, so many people live off pantry items that are just in these pantry refrigerators in New York, right? Or in Brooklyn or in the Bronx. It's like those people are literally going to that fridge and they're eating what is in it. They're not concerned if there's gluten or if there's if cheese or eggs. Like, you, you know what? When you're hungry, you got to eat. And I also feel like it's unfair. You know, listen, I want to make it clear. There's 79 million people globally that are vegans. I want to make that very clear. A lot of people are vegan because they have to be. I'm speaking to a lot of cultures in Africa, right? And a lot of those cultures in Africa would be happy to eat some cheese or some eggs or some milk if they had access to those things. So there is a distinction between being vegan by choice and being vegan because you have to be. Those are two very important conversations. Nuance is very important. Gray area is very important. But I also just want to say, you know, when it comes to a lot of vegan people, not all of them, but a lot of the vegan population believes that if we just make the whole world vegan, that will fix a lot of problems. And 
I just don't, those big grand statements, I don't believe that. I don't believe that that would just fix our food systems if everyone stopped eating meat. I don't think that considers culture. I don't think that considers sociology. I don't think that considers religion. I don't think that considers a culture in Yemen who drink camel milk. Like, why should they stop doing that? If that's all they have access to, then I think it's okay for them to drink camel milk, right? So traveling has only just reinforced that thinking. I've thought that forever, but traveling has absolutely, I can't go into Mexico and demand someone make me an acai bowl. Are right. you kidding? That's outrageous, you know? I really enjoyed a Counterspace episode exploring the Blue Zone research. It's areas where clusters of people over 100 years old continue to live healthy lives. You know, you feature places like an Aegean island that's in the Blue Zone and a self-sustaining community in Okinawa. What can some of these places teach us about living well? Well, it's my hope that these places can teach you that most importantly, what these places all have in common is this feeling of responsibility. These community members live a very long time, mostly because they feel like they have purpose. Like, I have a job to do. They live within a mile radius of where they work. They maybe walk to work or bike to work because of that, right? They encourage rest. They have an hour for lunch. You know, like these places that really push ease. Any blue zone, really, like the one thing they're really good at is being present. And the sun is out, so we go outside and we work outside. The best way to live well is to prioritize it. Whether we're talking about Okinawa, blue zones, whether you're talking about areas in the Mediterranean, what they have nailed is the priority of being well. And we all can just definitely learn a lesson from them, for sure. That's the biggest lesson. You mentioned getting outside and also, you know, being present. And I think something that really gives you opportunity to do that are community gardens, which are all around Brooklyn where you live. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hazard a guess that you live near a community garden or are somewhat involved in one because they're amazing places to grow and experience fresh vegetables and fruit in urban areas. Do you see them as important and do you see them kind of important in terms of educating young people that live in urban areas? I think a lot of people think that New York is just this big city and it's rough and there's no nature. Oh my gosh, there's nature everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Staying on the notion of community gardens for a little longer and the idea of growing your own food and having the opportunity to do so even if it's just a herb on your windowsill or maybe it is something in a community garden or your backyard, what difference does it make to the meal that you prepare and what you taste? Do you think you get a feeling of ownership over your meal and the meal that you maybe make for others if you know that you grew some of the ingredients yourself? Ownership. I think maybe you just feel proud. I take a lot of responsibility in the show. I really take a lot of responsibility with that. If we're going to talk about how important it is to grow things or make sustainable choices, right, then we also have to share with people what to do with it. What do you do? Okay, I want you to grow things. I want you to grow parsley. I want you to grow wild forage because it's good for bees. 
then it's like, okay, well, so if I'm growing this food, what do I do with it? You know, so mm-hmm. when those two things connect, it's so incredibly prideful for a person and for me. I mean, you want to see me have a complete and total optimistic fairy unicorn meltdown? Just take me to a farm. Because there's just something about it that is just the most magical, that is just the most magical freaking place. A place where food is grown, where there's like full biodynamic, there's animals, that means there's poop. And that means, you know, like there's everything there. Everything is there that makes this place this incredible symbiotic experience. Wow. I mean, that is the coolest thing ever. So to then be able to know that you put this in the ground, you saw it grow, you took care of it, you harvest it, you cook it, you eat it. What? It's like how it was meant to be. Next up. We meet two senior Girl Scouts who are working towards a Harvest Award about global and local food issues. We're taking the information and the actual physical food that we have grown and we've learned about and we're bringing it to these food pantries. We're helping to prepare and to feed a lot of the homeless people in New York. Isla McPherson and Marin Clark are working on a project in a community garden in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. I'm 15. I'm 14, turning 15 in a month. Both sides of my family are from the, from the Caribbean. My name is Scottish, so my mother was born in Denmark, um, and her side of the family is Danish. Um, so my middle name is Danish, my first name is Scottish, and my last name is Irish. We started in elementary school. We would make, let's say, like toys for um, dog shelters in the area, or we would write letters to people in nursing homes. We just did a lot of stuff based on community. And of course, selling Girl Scout cookies to raise money for the program. So we got older and we basically just started doing more advanced stuff that kind of helps us to reach our goal, which half of it would be the gold award and then half of it would just be kind of a higher level of Girl Scouts and just being able to achieve more. My eyes sort of got open to all the gardens that are in the Lower East Side. 
all gardens are kind of special in their own way because, of course, they're nestled into this busy city, and it's just kind of a pocket of peace for a lot of people who want to come through. But I know this garden has a lot of representatives from a lot of different cultures and areas that come together and bring what they know into it. Like there's bees over there. We did beekeeping. We learned about the growing of the fall vegetables. So there is a Bangladesh garden, which a lot of women run, and they kind of grow food and a lot of stuff from that culture. So we did get to plant some of the stuff, but we didn't get to really dive deep into that because while we were in the Bangladesh garden, we made um, Bakashi. Bakashi, which is a Japanese kind of, not fertilizer, but it's like a composter. So we made a lot of that and we packed <laughs> yeah. it away and we really got our hands dirty with that. There's just so many different gardens that are focused on different cultures and it's really good to see. Yeah, yeah. I think one really cool thing that I find about this garden is that it's really focused on innovation. I think especially because, well, they can't see what we see, but you, there's a pipe over there that recycles rainwater to be turned into water that can be used in the garden. So, of course, we have an herb specialist. Hi, I'm Maureen Kelly. Uh, thanks for getting here early. I know it's rainy out. I'm going to open up the gate for you. I'm a naturopathic doctor in the East Village here, and I've been an herbalist for 17 years. We have a medicinal garden in the back that's one of the most extensive and varied in the whole city. One of my favorite plants to talk about is passion flower. The passion flower is its um, common name, but its botanical name is Passiflora incarnata. And it has a beautiful purple flower that grows off of it. It's a vine, it's good for stress, and um, it also is an aromatase inhibitor. So what that means is that it can shuttle hormones more toward a testosterone picture. So I've actually used it on patients or given it to patients who are looking to transition herbally, um, female to male transitioning. I've never, I've never heard about a flower that you know involves like testosterone and all these other hormones. But that's definitely really yeah, it's cool a powerful plant. I think plants are powerful. I think if more people knew that you could do that, like with herbs, I think that would be. Like, it would just be so cool for more people to know. I know, exactly. I know, it's, it's a little-known thing, and I've had patients tell me that they wanted to start off herbally so that they would have, like, a more gentle transition and then and transfer over to, you know, testosterone or estrogen synthetically. I mean, I don't know specific names of everything, but, I mean, what would be interesting is there is there kind of an herb that... that kind of helps specifically women with, let's say, menstrual cramps or anything that a lot of the women go through? Yes. Yeah. Um, commonly called skull tap is for um, when people get cramps, it can calm the uterus down because when you get cramps, it's like the uterus is vibrating, right. it's going all crazy. And so would... 
we went to like Central Park, which obviously is not the wild, but we went further into the forest and we kind of, we put together um, a teepee and we did shelter and we did all this stuff. And it, it very much is connected to what we're learning in the garden because let's say you are on your own in the wild and you have to identify stuff that you can actually eat. You're welcome to pick any of the herbs in the garden to do <laughs> They're all free for people to pick. I mean, it is a learning garden. Do you kind of feel that somewhat you have a role as like a food educator? I think I'm a food liaison. <laughs> like, I feel like that's... Am I a food educator? We talk about one of my favorite cooks ever, Bue Young Chow. Her husband was a linguist. She is responsible for teaching Americans. She basically created the word stir-fry. That's what I mean, these are the stories that get lost. There was no word in English for stir-fry. She had to literally, with her linguist husband, create that word. And just knowing that this woman is this immigrant and she's making food for these Americans and she's calling it what she's calling it from her country, and these Americans are like, okay, well, we can't say that. So she had to just like come up with something, you know? That is an intense story. So what do I do as the food liaison, right? I have to just take it home and I have to take everybody into their kitchen, you know? And so that's, I feel like, a very important role. I hope so desperately that I do it correctly and that I do it in a way that feels fun. You got a lot, we had to pack a lot into 26 minutes. I'm thinking about what you said about Hong Kong and other places you visit to explore the kind of origins of our food or where it's coming from or exposing things such as food scarcity like you did in an episode where you went to Kenya. Mm -hmm. Uncovering or learning more about some of the like uncomfortable truths about food in the world that we live in and then coming home or returning to your kitchen after doing all this research how do you process some of those uncomfortable truths yourself, especially when you're getting to work with an abundance of foods in your own kitchen? I'm thinking about Stacey Abrams when you say that. She's coming to mind because people love Stacey Abrams when she was just hustling and just at the beginning, right? But then, you know, a piece of press comes out that Stacey Abrams has a million-dollar home and now no one likes her anymore. So it's a hard thing, you know? I feel like... Sometimes I feel like I'm only important or valuable if I'm still that poor foster care kid, right? Like, how dare I have a nice, expensive anything, you know? And that thinking is so absolutely catastrophic for oppressed people. And the idea of that is that sort of self-oppression, right? That's what I believe the evil of white supremacy is, is that it makes you so tired and makes you feel so, how dare you, that you just become compliant. And I have been through a lot, and a lot of people have been through a lot, and there is not one thing that'll ever make me feel guilty for having organic food in my home. We all deserve that. Every single person on the planet deserves to have access to nutritious food. So we all really need to let go of that trauma narrative that we aren't allowed to have something just because we have never had it before. I think that it is a devastating thing that we have hunger as a problem on the globe. Horrible in this country, but on the globe. The fact that one in seven people don't have enough food to eat is horrifying. I know that from personal experience. However, with that being the case, 
what would it mean as a hunger advocate if I were to be ashamed that I have food now, right? No one's ever asked me that question before, but that is really, like, that's how I feel. I feel like, yeah, I do have good food now, and it's about fucking time. And I'm gonna do everything in my possible power to make sure that everybody else experiences yeah. what it's like to have food finally as well. Sophia, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I've really, really, really enjoyed it. And you've just been so generous with your answers. So thank you. Of course. I care about this stuff. Next week, Faria Roishan, a writer and author of the recent book, Who is Wellness For? An examination of wellness culture and who it leaves behind. And I should add, an old friend. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hanna, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer, Jennifer Nelson is our engineer, Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Forgive me for being chatty. <laughs> Oh my God, please be chatty. You know, some people come on the podcast and they're not chatty enough. So this is, (laughs) it was music to my ears. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions, and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>